Hey everyone, we have another great episode for you. This week we talk with uh, Councilmember Alodracano, Councilmember here uh, in Ward 9 in Minneapolis. Uh, a lot of our conversation focuses around her being a social justice oriented council member and a lot of the challenges and hostilities she faces, not only from uh, fellow council members, for, but from the public in general and the media as well. It's a really uh, cryptic story. In particular, her experience um, around doxing, uh, speaking up for the execution of Jamar Clark and the ensuing uh, occupation at the 4th Precinct Police Station in North Minneapolis, and also her support of the activists here in Minneapolis uh, around Black Lives Matter. Uh, she's an awesome woman. It's great talking to her, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. It's a good microphone. I like my microphone. Cool. So you were famished? I was famished. I'm yeah. so hungry. <laughs> was that the first thing that came to you? Tamales. Actually, that's why I asked you to meet here. Oh, okay. <laughs> because I knew we could eat tamales and champurrado. Oh, yeah. It's a wintry day out. This is, no, it's perfect. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, so where are we and who are you? Where are we interviewing? We are at Mercado Central, which is uh, was the first Latino-owned cooperative, cooperative in Minnesota, in the state of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Uh, established more than 15 years ago, and like any cooperative, they've had their ups and downs, and now they're they're operating really well. Um, I remember the first day I got into office, I was actually told that the Mercado Central was going to close, mm-hmm. and I said, "Oh hell, it's not." Oh, Under gosh. the first Latina council member, this project will not close and here we are today um, standing up with the people nice so council member Cano, you want to just kind of describe uh, what that means in terms of like wards and, and that kind of like sure sure civics piece for folks that aren't from Minneapolis yeah definitely so I'm one of 13 council members in the city of Minneapolis um, our population is about 500,000 people each ward is comprised of about 30,000 people ours happens to be the most diverse mm. and also the most low-income uh, one of the most low-income. what does diverse mean in this context? What in this, mm-hmm. Demographics are we talking about? Yep, so we have, out of the 30,000 people, about 35% of them are Latino descent, mm-hmm. primarily Mexican, Ecuadorian, and then a mix of Guatemalan, Salvadorian, Puerto Rican, Colombian. We have um, the largest mosque uh, where the uh, Muslim community comes to practice and a very robust um, Somali community. Largest mosque? Uh, in the city. In the city, okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we have the largest American Indian urban population here in the Ninth Ward. Wow. And it's a strong tradition in our ward. This is where the American Indian movement started yeah. in the Phillips neighborhoods. And so I'm very proud to represent that diversity. We're also... Um, the most uh, active on GLBT issues. We have a lot of GLBT community members that live here. Cool, awesome. Mm-hmm. So, uh, how long have you been a council member? That's two years. Two years. Awesome. Yep. Good. Yeah. Right, that was two years ago. Yep, we have four year terms, yeah. and uh, we ran our election in 2013, mm-hmm. and our first year in office was 2014. We just completed our second year, and they've learned a lot. <laughs> what have you learned? <laughs> let's, let's hear about that. Mm-hmm. Well, At first, um, I thought I was going to be able to get some wins by being um, um, a nice collaborator with my council colleagues and work on issues based on the relationship that I was able to build with them. But over time, it became clear that um, the more public accountability people have at the table, uh, that that's the most secure way to get a win. And so a couple of times we have organized with the community to save some of the funding resources that we wanted on the table for diverse homeownership, mm-hmm. for uh, clean energy, for um, you know um, 
initiatives that would help people of color in low-income communities. And so by creating that public space to have that mm. conversation with residents instead of just keeping it behind closed doors mm-hmm. is what helped us to actually prevent further cuts and to restore some of the budget cuts. When, what does public accountability look like? What do you mean by that? A little more? Yeah, so one of the main uh, ways that we tried to create that public accountability is by letting people know what's happening. Mm-hmm. So we use a lot of our social media to engage young people and people of color in decision making and in having input. So we're very active on Twitter. Um, when you say we, you just mean, you mean your office? My office, yeah, yep. Okay. And uh, we have two staff members in our office. All council members get two, two staff members. And so we use Twitter a lot to create uh, public debates about issues and, and to create advocacy, um, you know, um, discussions about why we need things. Uh, we're very active on Facebook, and we're also using our newsletter in a, in a very new way to engage people. Most uh, people have an outdated sort of newsletter format, and ours is very um, appealing to a broader, younger audience. So... We want to make sure that people know what's happening in City Hall. We want them to be engaged. And when we know that there's a meeting that's coming up, we actually do turnout. We will get on the phone. So you agitate folks and get them out to the meetings? Well, I don't know if agitating is the word, but <laughs> inviting for sure. Yeah, you know, yeah. letting them know that they should come to City Hall and, and participate in these meetings and, and let them know why things are important. Because a lot of times our communities don't know. No, yeah. They just don't know. So... <clears throat> Um, just so I'm getting this correctly, so you're, can, you're kind of saying that, and then initially you felt that it'd be good to like negotiate and collaborate, and now you feel like it's more important to. What's another way to say that? Just to really clean that up a little bit. Sure. Um, you know, at first it was. Um having conversations with your colleagues about things that were important to you and and sometimes they just wouldn't come around to that issue and so when you're feeling so powerless within Mm -hmm. an institution um, our office really gets our power from the people Mm -hmm. and so we really work with the community members and the residents and the organizers and the and the groups that care about social justice issues to advance those conversations internally so we create moments where the public can come and be a part of decision making Mm -hmm. So that when people take their votes, those votes are reflecting a set of values that then we can all be held accountable um, in our in our next election cycle. Awesome. Uh, let's go back to your childhood. So you grew up here in in the Minneapolis Twin Cities area. No, I actually. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I grew up in in Mexico. I was uh, I grew up there in Chihuahua uh, for the first um, ten years of my life. Although I was, um, uh, you know, I was born here in in the U.S. My family was kind of the border family, coming and going back and forth. Mm. And so after the economic um, situation wasn't getting better there in Mexico, we immigrated here to a small town in Minnesota called Litchfield, and it's seven thousand people, uh, predominantly white town. And I, um, you know. I learned English, I graduated from high school, and then my mom said, you're going to have to go to the university, so you're going to go. <laughs> I wasn't too thrilled about that, but um, but I came to the U of M. How far is that from here, Litch- Litchfield? It's an hour and a half. What was that like, being the only, presumably the only Latina, or were there many others? There was a handful of us uh, Mexicans, and, um, you know, it was it was tough. We were, I think, most, most of us were stereotyped, and... Um, you know, some of us had challenges with uh, discrimination in the town. My parents were undocumented at the time, and, and my mom almost got deported one, one time at the meatpacking company that she worked at. Mm-hmm. So it was, um, you know, it was hard. It was hard to talk about our, our experiences. You weren't in a robust environment where here you can 
talk to any group and mm-hmm. they'll you know provide support for you or you can share your story and feel empowered when you work with other people there you know we were growing up in the times where there was still a lot of shame around being undocumented mm-hmm. now it's a little bit different now there's a lot of power behind the dream act movement and the dreamers directly challenging ice to come and, and deport you know the young people of this country whereas back in the day we were still like in the shadows you know and and really i came to minneapolis during the time where immigrant workers were organizing with labor unions and faith leaders to um, hit the streets to uh, demonstrate to protest and to call attention to the needed changes that our national policies needed to make in order to embrace and humanize uh, the immigrant community yeah i mean you know really important words especially this week where ice has ice has been deporting also to central americans that have been applying for amnesty and the uncomfortable aspect of that is it's it systematically targets people that are fleeing for very particular reasons, right? Their their homes are being threatened, their families are being threatened, they might get killed if they were to return, which makes it that much more cruel, you know? Yeah, that is that is very very awful, and I I really struggle, you know, as a policymaker to to, to figure out how to be um, relevant in that conversation, you know, because for so many years I was an organizer working on comprehensive immigration reform issues at the state level, and that was even hard, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I had access to an entire network of state leaders that, that could move on these issues, and and I just feel like, you know, in these cases we need to speak up, we need to speak mm-hmm. out, we need to talk about how it's horrible that we're doing this, we need to hold leaders accountable, um, and we need to figure out how to develop an organizing and, and community safety strategy to support the members that are going through this, the community members that are facing this. Yeah. And you mentioned that your mom was, was, works in meatpacking? She used to. She used to work yep, in meatpacking. For a long time. My dad still does. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I feel like that's the other thing I've learned in Minneapolis is that the narrative of immigration that I grew up with my father who was would have been eighty seven this year. Mm-hmm. So he was so he would go to LA and Chicago. That's that's what his generation did. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like and what I've experienced here is people are living in these smaller cities around meatpacking plants and different types of industries, mm-hmm. but it's creating a very different um, a dynamic and face of immigration for our community. Hmm. Is that does that ring with you at all? Um, I guess. W- w- could you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? Well, yeah. Just traditionally, uh, folks would go to like Chicago, and now they're encompassing all these little small towns all over the Midwest, mm-hmm. and it's creating very different experiences, such as your own. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas I was raised in a largely like. 94% Latino population in Los Angeles. Mm. So every day I saw people that I recognized. Wow. Every day there were immigrants all over the place. And yeah. we predominantly communicated <clears throat> in Spanish, not just with my dad, but just in stores and government centers, whatever. So my discomfort was going to college and meeting white people for the first time, you know, as a group. And not really knowing what to do. And like, <laughs> really confused about how to talk to them and how to talk about my own background. Cause, right. Because I casually talked about, like, my friends that were in gangs or whatever, <clears throat> and they'd immediately be like, oh, shit. Or want to know if you know if I still knew gangbangers or something like that. Either way, I was stigmatized really quickly, so I had to learn like, oh shit, I probably shouldn't talk about that anymore. Right, you know? right, right, right. Huh. Well, um, yeah, this is this is a different context for me coming to a place from coming from a place where there wasn't a lot of diversity, coming to a place where like the diversity was very um, robust. I was in love. I was so happy. I felt refreshed. I felt free. I felt. Uh, energized and I felt like I needed to fight that much harder to protect it Um, so you know places like the Mercado where you can come here and talk to in Spanish to anybody and everybody that's here I mean these are gemstone 
um, initiatives that our communities have worked so hard for that for me it's it's a privilege you know and, and it's like a, something special and unique that we need to ensure we continue to elevate so our kids can have that experience too and so so you're right I mean a lot of us you know maybe are growing up in those smaller towns those rural towns in Minnesota <clears throat> where you know we're not only um, I guess um, shamed for being from another country or for having an accent but mm-hmm. also because we're poor or because we're not driving the right cars or because we're not going to the right church or you know I can just think of like the long line of uh, of of issues that um, some of our community members are facing in, in small towns hmm. yeah absolutely so um, you, you know I see you a lot of protests and doing different things mm-hmm. so let's talk about that component of, <clears throat> of how you see yourself as a legislator or elected leader? Sure. Um, I come from a a long history and tradition of community organizing, and um, I never thought I would be an elected official. Mm. I I decided to run for office uh, probably six months before I was going to to run. Um, At least um, I started thinking about it, and and I didn't really make like an actual decision until like the month before we were going to launch our campaign, because it's not an easy easy, um, decision, but I think I'm the type of person that would rather challenge myself than to sit on my hands and and ponder like what would have happened what if um the much more like let's do it and if it works great and if it doesn't then ni modo you just keep moving on mm. so um i worked on the dream act campaign when i was a student organizer on campus i worked on comprehensive immigration reform issues i did environmental justice organizing when 3m ended up polluting um uh, many neighborhoods here in St. Paul and and in, in the Twin Cities area, and so I had been immersed in a world where you know fighting for justice was the that was my status quo. Mm. You know that was what I did, and when I became a um, an elected official, I didn't really think that that would change, and I'm glad that it hasn't. And I think that the institution tries to the culture of the institution really tries to feel make you feel like you're being ineffective because of that. Mm. But in fact, it's why you're effective. Right. It's why you're making change. It's and where you so have your credibility is where how people recognize you and you move things. You're relevant. You're connected. That relationship is strong. That's mm. the, that's those are the voices we have been elected to bring forward into city hall, and I. Think think that if politics is not being helpful in making change, then what is politics good for? So some people challenge me and they're like, well, maybe you would be a better activist than you would be an elected official. And I push back and I say, no, that's not right. Actually, I'm here to serve my community and they feel Mm. good about the things that I'm doing here on city council. So my role is to use our uh, collective power that we have gained through this political office to wield the change that our communities are demanding. So that's people at the city council telling you that, that, that you'd be better off just being a full-time activist or something? It's questions that I get from the media mm. or perceptions mm. that exist of me out there, you know, in terms of, like, are you too feisty? Are you too difficult to work with? Are you too in the community and not enough in policy? And for me, there's no there's no division between the two. If our policy is not based mm. on the people, then why are we there? Well, what the hell are they doing? Yeah. And that sounds like also really gendered language, too, like feisty. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I get that. Yes, definitely. There's there's a a good load of um, challenges within City Hall that go above and beyond race. Right, sure. Mm. (laughs) You're really really good at segmenting your statements (laughs) in a really easy way. (laughs) 
because people usually, I mean, you're probably more used to being interviewed than most people I talk to. So, like, they usually just kind of ramble a little bit and have to, like, rap and shape their statements a little. Well, I mean, I've had to do a lot of media <laughs> media interviews lately, right. as you can remember or recall. So. Right. Which is a good segue. Thanks. Appreciate it. <laughs> So why have you been interviewed a ton, Alondra? What's going on? What's going on in your, your simple Midwestern life? Well, actually, I was actually. at the Mall of America, oh. which some of you might know, uh, because it's supposed to be the biggest mall of America. And, um, yeah, it depends on... Anyway, I'm not going to get into the politics of malls. Right. But I am... Um, I'm there, a, but there's a surprising it is a politic of the mall. Like I, didn't, I didn't learn that until I came here. There sure is. There <laughs> sure is. So the Mall of America, it, um, I was there the day before Christmas Eve supporting a Black Lives Matter protest and action. And I was there to support my ward residents who are, you know, one of the leading uh, voices of this movement here in Minneapolis and in the state. And um, I brought my kids and... Um, you know, we were hanging out, documenting the event, and um, I was tweeting about it. I had made a Facebook post about it earlier in the day, announcing that I would be there in support and talking about why it was important for electeds to be there. And um, during the time that I was at the mall, um, there was uh, four people that emailed me, um, and I could check it on my phone, you know, that were um, angry at the fact that I was there mm. and were calling they identify me. identify themselves <clears throat> as residents, or they're just... They actually didn't know. Um, what happens is what they email me using the city web form. So oh. you have to type in um, your name and email address. Those are uh, requirements. But then you don't have to put in an email or, or, I'm sorry, you don't have to put in your address or your phone number if you okay. don't want to. But some people did. Okay. And so um, four of these people wrote in to me and, and said, you know, you're an unfit council member. What are you doing there breaking laws? Which, of course, we weren't breaking any laws. Right. And, um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to threaten to take my donations away from your campaign because I don't agree with your actions. And so because I was having a very public conversation using social media, which is, a, again, a tool that um, my generation uses a lot. I'm, mm. I'm a much younger council member than the rest. And um, I decided to respond using mm. Twitter. And so I posted their emails to my Twitter account and, and responded with just some short memes because, of course, you only have 140 characters or less <laughs> with the photo upload. Right. Um, and quickly, the um, what I would consider the right wing of, of the Twitter sphere got a hold of these uh -huh. tweets and started attacking me. Uh -huh. And they framed this as a doxing uh, narrative, which, of course, if you know anything about doxing, it comes from the Gamergate scandal where um, women were being targeted uh, by the, the game who refused to let go of misogyny and sexism mm. in the gaming industry. And women were targeted in very serious ways where they were, um, you know, folks were in, essentially harassing them and calling for things like, you know, we should be raping this woman for speaking out or we wow. should be killing yeah. them or we should be abusing them. Mm. And so it was a very pointed, very violent um narrative that came out uh, from these folks who were doxing the women. Mm. And so they used this opportunity to flip it and to use it against me, saying that I was doxing um, these um, oh. people who had emailed me. That was their analysis. Mm -hmm. right. And so um, the four people were not my ward residents. Um, one of them actually lives in Edina, uh, but he misidentified himself as, as living in Minneapolis. And so really, you know, to me it was less about the addresses and the phone right, numbers sure, being sure, posted. Sure. And it was more about if you're entering this public conversation with me about Black Lives Matter, let's have this conversation in the public. Yeah. And it goes back to my issues of transparency and community engagement that I've had since day one. Um, 
And so the the right-wing media quickly framed this story, and then the mainstream media followed it. And then I decided to respond to those um, accusations about a week later. And the, the big thing that struck me in engaging with reporters around this issue is that they were really shocked I wasn't going to apologize. Apologize to who? People wanted me to apologize to the world for... For what? For responding via Twitter with these emails that I had taken screenshots of. what premise? Like, was it a privacy premise or what? They felt that it was uh, unethical. Unethical, Um, wow. Yep, so there there were no laws that were breached. Some of the conservative Twitter folks were saying that I had broken data practices laws. Yeah, I'd read As an elected official, I know what the data practices laws are, and our emails can be recalled at any moment in time by reporters or the public. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that I had the right to... I had a right to disclose this information, and um, and they could too. I mean, anybody that writes to me and I respond to them, they can disclose my emails. So, um, so yeah, it's been kind of a, a difficult two weeks just because we had to deal with that, and I didn't appreciate how much attention it was taking away from Black Lives Matter right. and talking about you know the fact that grand juries don't work when we try cases of police brutality and misconduct. Right. In Minnesota, we've had none since the year 2000. None of the police misconduct uh, cases that have been taken by grand juries have come out with a result against the police officer. So right now we have a case in Minneapolis where uh, Mr. Jamar Clark was um, shot in the head by a Minneapolis police officer yeah. and the case is, is pending. You know, I've been we writing have it. To I've been trying to be consistent about using execution too because he mm-hmm. was handcuffed. And it was- that's mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. right. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wonder what kind of situation do you have to be in where someone has to be shot in the head? Yeah. And I just can't Absolutely. come up with any answers Absolutely. for that. So, so mm-hmm. that's why I've been talking to the media a lot lately. Okay. I want to get a little more into this idea that uh, <clears throat> there's like an ethical, well, like what those responses, like, so what else were they saying? It was unethical, I guess. Some cases illegal. Um, well, obviously, some people were just so thought it was illegal, and no, that wasn't the case. Um, they started a, a change.org petition against me to <laughs> to recall my election and get me out of office. Um, they um, talked about how this was a poor leadership decision. Uh, that maybe if it wasn't illegal and it wasn't unethical, maybe it just was a, like a mean girl move um, on Twitter. And, and again, I question the gender premise of that. And yeah, so, yeah. Um, so it's okay for you to email me privately and call me an unfit council member and that I shouldn't be standing up for, for black people, but it's not okay if we have that conversation in public. Why? Why is that not okay? Yeah, I'm wondering what the standard there for people. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and, and I'm, I want to hear more about the, the the reporters. So they just were dismissive of it. Like what? Well, I think what for are these folks doing? the the reporters um, when I would engage them, you know, the TV reporters. I did four TV interviews in the same day, and in, in a response to the story was really um, they just really wanted to press for that apology. You know, they were huh. wondering why and would you do it again, and are you going to do it in the future? And it was this this like you know fetish or focus on um, you know are we going to make her stand down yeah. you know and um, yeah. and I'm not sure where that is coming from yeah. but I know that I didn't do anything wrong and I know that I did something which I believed was true to the values that, that I've been elected to represent which is to stand up for issues of injustice and using a public platform that we have so um, 
so I'm not sure. I mean, they were just a little shocked that the apology wasn't there. And I mean, I can think of many other politicians who've done things and, and don't apologize for it. So yeah. I don't I don't know that that response itself is um, was unexpected. But I think it was unexpected from someone like me on this kind of issue in this kind of way where I've been um, severely attacked by the right wing and anti-immigrant groups like Powerline. If you know anything about that blog, um, mm. it's a it's a very it's a very heated anti-immigrant blog that I used to have to engage with when I was an immigrant rights organizer, and so when people see my name, and when they know that uh, you know they look at my Twitter profile and I identify as an immigrant and I identify as a third world uh, feminist, um, they freak out. And they wonder, why is this Mexican little girl not cleaning my toilet instead of being in City Hall mm. making decisions? And so just that, that actual paradigm shift in having the new emerging electorate be in a City Hall office, you know, with a much more diverse background, which mm. a much more diverse, you know, I would even say global experience representing local issues is jarring to them. And so they want that apology more than ever. Yeah, it's a way of trying to silence you. They want it. Mm-hmm. They want that moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They want to um, so um, one of the one of the things that I when I talk to people <coughs> about, about Minneapolis too in California uh-huh. is that it's a fairly young population, and so you being the first legislator or uh, city council member right in the in the city? Yes. Yeah, I'm the first um, Mexican-American and the first Latina yeah. in Minneapolis history to be elected to the Minneapolis City Council. Um, there's about four other, I think, Latino elected officials throughout the state. Yeah. Representative Carlos Mariani, who's from Puerto Rico. Uh, Senator Torres Ray, who's from Colombia. Uh, Senator Melissa Franson, who's Puerto Riqueña. And we have Edwina Garcia, who's Mexican-American. I believe we have those guys now. We're, we're all elected in an office now. And we used to have a school board member, Alberto Monserrate, who was who's Puerto Riqueño. And so there's very there's a handful of us, really, in the entire state. And um, I'm, I believe I'm the youngest one of all. I'm 34. But when I ran for office, I was like 31 or 32. Mm. So I think in, in thinking about uh, what we were talking about before about these like hated responses towards you, it seems like uh, Minneapolis in general has been really <coughs> elevating conversations around race justice, and it's been important. Just for, and for me being new here and just kind of getting up, getting caught in the swell of it, it's been really invigorating as a person of color. Mm-hmm. But we're also seeing those those challenges, right? To like our, our assertion and our ascendancy the as, back, a, as yeah. a politic. The right. backlash against this has been um, the. The, the, the amount of the backlash against what, what, I, what I symbolized as, as a Latina woman, as the first Mexican-American elected to the Minneapolis City Council standing up for Black Lives Matter, yeah. tells me how deeply entrenched right. these issues are around white supremacy and white privilege. Because you weren't the only council member there, but it seems like you got more, you got more, disproportionately more. Well, at the mall I was, but yeah. in the in the fourth precinct, I guess. Previously, yeah. we were uh, many of uh, three of us were active on the um, on the protests that were taking place at the um, site where the Jamar Clark issue happened, which is you know in, in a part of Minneapolis that people refer to as North Minneapolis, and so. Um, 
just the amount of attention that this specific case got tells me um, a lot about the challenges ahead. And if anything, I probably underestimated the... um, the sentiments uh, that exist against the type of work that I'm doing and the type of work that I stand for. Right. And, and that backlash was actually pretty um, awakening in terms of just being a little bit more sober about what it's going to take to reach those racial equity goals that we as a city have set out for ourselves. Yeah. I mean, mind you, I'm not... I'm, I'm proud to be the first Latina elected to the Minneapolis City Council, but I'm also a little bit embarrassed because it's 2015. Yeah. You know, and uh, in in Minnesota, in Minneapolis anyway, the Latino population really made itself known more than 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago. But also, you know, I mean, we, you know, we've, we've had a lot of barriers. The raids and deportations hit us hard, Mm -hmm. very hard a few years ago. I think it was like 2007 or 2009 where the largest immigration raid took place in Worthington, Minnesota, where they shut down the highway. They sent in about 7 to 12 Greyhound buses to raid the Swift meatpacking plant. Mm -hmm. And I was on site. I mean, that morning we got the call and we drove from Minneapolis to to Worthington. It's about three to four, three Mm -hmm. and a half hours away. And uh, we were on the ground trying to troubleshoot. And at the time, Facebook was very new. MySpace was still being used. <laughs> still, still <a> <laughs> and so, um, you know, it's it's been hard to see our community take so many hits. But yet, we're still here. Yeah. Uh, just going back to the, the last topic. So, uh, so pe- people are obviously feeling threatened by you and feeling threatened by this growing and, and increasingly powerful Latino community. But also, it was clear in the fourth precinct occupation. And for the, just to mm-hmm. describe it a little further... So it was a response to the killing of Jamar Clark by mm-hmm, police. Mm-hmm. And um, so folks were there for about two weeks, I think, in total. I think so, something yeah. like that, yep. And lots of pepper spraying, lots of attacks. <clears throat> and two white supremacists came and shot up, shot at the community the community of activists that were staying overnight. Like, they, and, and so, like, and when I, when people are surprised that Trump is winning, I refer back to my experience here. Like, that, you don't feel that in California, you don't feel that in Los Angeles, but you feel it here where we are. Right, right, like why right. that's relevant and why that makes sense. Right. Yeah, I think that what I've what I've come to learn is that these issues of race and racism are still very hard for some people to have uh, out in the open. And so it's okay if you're having them, um, you know, conversations privately in your home or between mm. your friends. But when it comes to the public sphere, people still have a bit of a challenge around those things. And um, my role is to continue to to force that discussion to come forward and for us to own it and for us to feel comfortable with it. But before you can feel comfortable with it, you might feel some tension. And I think tension is okay. I think tension can lead to important change. And so going back a little bit to what you mentioned about you know, myself and two other council members were there in support of the peaceful demonstrations that were happening uh, when the community wanted to respond to this shooting uh, of, again, of, of a 24-year-old unarmed black man in North Minneapolis um, where, you know, he was shot in the head. And um, and so some of us went out there to, to support, and there were close to four to 500 community members one day when we did a press conference with Congressman Ellison in support of the issue. Um, 
I feel like, yes, some people do feel threatened, you know, like maybe the, the white supremacists who came and shot at the, uh, at the peaceful protesters day, days later, mm-hmm. maybe those people feel threatened. Some people, I think, feel empowered. Yeah, I, I've met a lot of people who are very supportive of what we're doing and a lot of Latino people who are, you know, 100% behind us. And I think there's other people that are just kind of waiting to be earned, you know, waiting to, to see how this conversation feels for them and, and what is racial equity really and how do we get there and what is their role in it so I think we have a few different kinds of um, thoughts or thinking out in the community when it comes to issues of uh, diverse political representation when it comes to issues of social justice and when it comes to issues of closing the racial disparities that our city has now been known for nationally as being the number one in, in racial disparities. Yeah. Well, maybe not the number one, but we're definitely in competition for that prize. Yeah. So what, um, for you moving forward this new year, uh, what are sort of some of the things that, that you're looking towards or some of the mm-hmm. programs that you're thinking about? <clears throat> so we're, <clears throat> we're focusing a lot on this issue of gentrification. Mm-hmm. And as Minnesota becomes a more diverse state, it's a baby boomer state right now, so our population, our elderly population is going to be um, doubling, and our people of color population is going to be doubling as well. But in the city, our mayor wants to grow our city um, by like 100,000 people or so. And so my out of, out of how many people live here now? Mm, about we have about like four hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand people. Oh. So she wants to grow it by I think a hundred thousand more. It's massive. And it's a big <clears throat> and so the question is, so what happens to the people that are here now? Yeah. And um, how do we make sure that we don't displace low income communities of color from the areas that have been highly disinvested in by the city over years, and um, and make sure that we we accompany any kind of investment, whether it's development projects or housing dollars. Um, how do we make sure that we're able to retain the people that have been here, making these communities thrive when nobody else thought that they could thrive? And what does gentrification look like here for folks that aren't from here? Well, <clears throat> think about it like this. I mean, we, we live in a very diverse ward right now. We live in an area that, um, um, you know, used to be known, uh, I mean, the city in general, Minneapolis, used to be known as Murderopolis. Mm. And um, that was when a lot of people left, homeowners left. And so then the city created a program to reinvest in the housing stock and created programs to help with homeownership and that is creating a wave of people moving back and companies in town have uh, helped with um, so you moving know, back like out of suburban areas mm-hmm. okay. so yep. white, so bringing trying to respond to white flight yes so white flight happened and now with these um, urbanist conversations around let's invest in public transit and let's be more sustainable cities and let's have high density and let's have these bike lanes all those conversations are now attracting more people to move back into the cities in addition to the money we have thrown at at the housing Um, but we haven't addressed what happened when the foreclosure crisis took place and many many communities of color were giving really bad loans and then were the ones to be forced out of their homes and so right now a lot of us are renters I'm a renter a lot of the people of color and low-income communities that I know are renters and so we're trying to figure out how can we stabilize and improve the housing uh, for renters and give them more rights by changing city policies to empower renters and not just landlords and that feeds into gentrification because we don't want people to get priced out of the city sure. and we don't want people to be forced out of their rental units just because the landlord wants to make them fancier and more expensive right. because now there's a uh, 
want to be in the city. So this theory of you should be able to have a job in downtown and be able to take the light rail from your South Minneapolis home there and back and then stop at the grocery store and then get back on your bike and get, go home, that theory works for some people but not for everybody. And so I'm concerned with how do we help those other folks who might be left behind. So gentrification is one, renters' rights is connected to that. Uh, we're looking at uh, environmental justice issues and environmental racism in the city. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at green zones, which California has done. And so um, how so, do we help? Can I say more about that? What's a green zone here? Um, so here we're developing it in a very similar way where we're targeting the most low-income, diverse areas of the city that also happen to be the highest pollu polluted areas of the city to um, establish a criteria of how do we help them to phase out the environmental pollution and phase in uh, green incentives to do development or housing or job creation. And so at this moment, we're, um, we drafted a resolution that passed one of our committees, the Health, Environment, and Community Engagement Committee, and now it's moving to the second committee, which is a community development and regulatory services committee and if it passes that committee then it'll go to the full council and then we will start this work group so the resolution is about creating a community-based work group that's going to help us figure out how to implement this uh, green zones concept or idea and uh, we had somebody from california come and and give us a um a uh, training on it i mm. believe his name was bill gallegos mm. and um what he part of california I'm not sure where he was from, but he was working with a group here called the Center for Earth, Energy, and Democracy. So we're, we're heavily invested in making that um, a reality. And already we've seen um, city council members move to cut that initiative. There was $50,000 in our budget um, in December to help implement that strategy. And eight, eight or so council members voted to take it out of mm. the budget. So it did not survive. Why did they oppose it? What was their... <clears throat> Why? No, that... That was a good program. I actually don't know why they voted to, to cut it. I, I'm, it was a very small amount of money um, yeah, right. it, compared to the, the size of our overall budget. And it was a very targeted um, amendment that was um, meant to take this money out. And if they wanted to reallocate the money to do other things, they actually could have chosen other sources of funding to take it from. But this was a very direct attack on low-income communities yeah. and communities of color who are struggling with environmental concerns. So again, that goes back to voting, voting with your values. And um, if that's not an issue you want to support, then let's make that known. Yeah. So I spoke out publicly. Uh, at the council meeting about my dismay at council members supporting this budget cut and um, and I challenged it you know I talked about it as an act of misogyny mm. because it was targeted at a council member who's the only woman of color on the council and um, this is the second year in a row that there's a very tailored initiative that looks at the issue that I've been working on the entire year and then council members um, you know get together and then choose to take that out instead of talking to me about it or instead of um, asking you know collaboratively where can we find this money yeah, yeah. and and reallocate it from other sources and what are some of the polluters in these areas what, is it uh, manufacturing or what yeah causing these problems yep there? so if you look at a map of Minneapolis the areas that are most heavily um, polluted with uh, with air air pollution and um, and you know environmental issues such as arsenic in yep. the ground or lead in the homes they are the most low-income, most diverse areas of the city who also happen to be industrially zoned. Yeah. And so for years, city planners have 
put this um, picture together for a city where if you look at the the areas of the city that happen to be the wealthier areas the areas that have no challenges to very little challenges with environmental concerns um, they don't happen to be industrially zoned and so we have um, there are a set of decisions that have been made over time that um, have supported, uh, through the institutional arm, have supported environmental racism. And so whether or not people were aware of it in the past is not really my concern. Yeah. My concern is how do we fix it now? Yeah. And green zones is one way we can fix it. And, and so now we're, we're trying to focus on uh, getting enough political support from within the city hall um, council members to approve this green zones uh, work group and to uh, start engaging with the businesses that do live or operate out of those industrially zoned areas to have a real conversation about how do we transition into a clean energy uh, economy? How do we help you as a union representing folks in this factory where it's not good for their health either yeah. to be working to transition let's have that real conversation let's come up with real solutions let's move the institution meaning city government and maybe state and federal too to put in some dollars behind this transition plan you know we're not talking just about like high level like oh we love the environment and that's it we're talking about real people and how we can make this actually move on the ground yeah and it changes the narrative around because the narrative around environmental justice is usually around you know, white perspectives or white voices or things that matter to white folks. And so it's when we talk about, when we intersect race justice in that conversation, you have a very different and more complex assessment of the sins that are happening every day to communities of color. Absolutely. And where it's coming from. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, and in, in the community that I represent in East Phillips that's facing this very specific issue, we also have the, the highest number of children living in that area, mm. children and elders. So it's, it's like, you know, when I talk to people about this, when I talk to some of my friends that live in other cities, they're like, this is the textbook definition of environmental racism. And I can't even <laughs> believe it. I'm like, I know. Like, you're reading about it in your classrooms. You're teaching your students about it. And I'm sitting here on the ground trying to fight it with, like, my, my, one, my w one vote on the city council. Well, then, like, on the, and, and then soon those kids are going to become, like, the highest incidences of cancer among that particular population. Like, Asthma. That, that shit's real. Asthma, yeah. yep, yep, and asthma uh, hospitalizations. Asthma, yep, asthma hospitalization rates are the highest in these areas that yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's not, we're not making it up. <laughs> Do people say we're making it up? <laughs> Sometimes I don't know what else to say to be like, it's so obvious. Yeah, yeah. Look at it, you know. It's like the emperor doesn't have any clothes. Can't you see? <laughs> I remember when I was in college and they did the same thing. They, they did a map of LA and then they overlaid it with like concentrations of polluters and pollutants. Mm -hmm. And like all I saw was like communities of color, especially in our schools and all over where I grew up. I was like, oh, that's why Ernie had asthma. That's my brother. Yeah. That's sicker. And we have, we all three of us have these weird ailments. Absolutely. It doesn't Absolutely. doesn't necessarily correlate always, but like right. we were in a more harmful, you know, medical environment than the white kids on the West Side. Like, and really part cool. of that, what you're talking about, you know, you're like, maybe it's not all harmful. One of the things we've been able to do here, thanks to the work of our state representative, Karen Clark, mm. who was one of the first GLBTQ uh, women elected into office over 30 years ago, she um, was able to pass a cumulative health impact law at the state level, which means that um, when you're looking at issues of pollution, 
you, you're not just going to measure like what happens to the one extra particulate of smog that somebody brings into the community, but you're actually going to look at what happens when that multiplies with everything else that's already in the air. Okay. So you take the, the holistic picture, you the community, mm-hmm, yeah. which actually has a, a, a duplicative, like, I mean, yeah. things like quickly grow so they only, together. They only measured it by one vector, I guess? Right. Instead of measuring by one vector, she's saying if wow. you're going to do anything That's in this community, done before, or they just didn't measure. It yeah, all? before there wasn't there wasn't a lot of precaution around this, and it was just like one one developer coming in saying, "Look, we're not really going to do that much. I mean, it's just you know a couple of more things we're going to be adding into the air." Yeah. Whereas if you if you look at the layers right. of pollutants and things that our community has to breathe or deal with on a day to day basis, it just becomes so deadly. Yeah. Uh, whereas if it was just a singular issue. You know, being proposed in another area of the city that wasn't dealing with arsenic, that doesn't wasn't dealing with lead, that wasn't dealing with the, the emissions of being next to a highway, right. then of course, you know, the the harm is not that bad. But here, when people try to downplay the fact that you're just going to add one more truck into the neighborhood, because come on, that's not really going to do much. It actually um, has the power to do ten times mm. much, um, much more, much more worse things because of the um, the existing conditions already right. that people have to battle with. So it's more, it's more exponential. Exactly. Uh. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Anything you're excited about? been a pretty dour podcast. Oh, boy. Um, I'm a pretty know, serious guy, man. Yeah, 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 this yeah is, totally. This is very record-breaking for me. So um, I'm, we've been working with a, a group of women, uh, Latino women in the ward, to talk about uh, establishing a Latino arts and cultural center. That'd be fun. And so we're having that conversation now because, um, you know, in Chicago they have a Mexican-American museum. Yeah. Um, here we have the African-American museum and we have uh, the Somali museum. And so we're just getting our brains together around that. What would that mean? What would that take? Who do we invite to be a part of this conversation? Right. How could we do it in, in, a, in a way that can be both supported by institutions but not controlled by institutions, yeah, right. but led by the community and for the community. So we represent ourselves on our own terms and mm-hmm. not get stuck with like weird descriptions mm-hmm. of like clothing or something mm-hmm. strange. Mm-hmm. And then we're also working a lot on the minimum wage issue. And um, luckily, we've been to we've gotten to the point where the city's going to do a study on what it would mean to have the city and the region have a higher minimum wage. So um, we were able to recruit people to apply to that RFP, the request for proposals, to have a consultant do that study for us and have a more guided conversation inside City Hall about what that means. Uh, But at the same time that I say that I'm excited about that, I also know that it's going to be very challenging and we're going to have to build a very strong case for it in the community and we're going to have to get business owners to to be a part of this conversation and, you know, places like this, the Mercado, where the mom and pop and pop shops, you know, are are not making a lot of money per month. I mean, we have to engage them and find out what does this mean for you? How can we do it together? What would make sense? Um, and we're also at the point nationally where there are a lot of models for how to do this mm-hmm. at a citywide level mm-hmm. while accommodating and being responsive to mm-hmm. different types of businesses. Yep, yep. Seattle and um, yeah. I think LA did LA something County, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. LA County. Oh, that's I interesting. LA County, yeah. Okay, okay. And I don't remember if it was like citywide or just uh, yeah. just for things that are run by LA County. And San Francisco as well. Yeah, San Francisco. Well. Yeah. 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 
So there's a lot of really good stuff going on, and we're going to get ready to celebrate Mexica New Year. So that's going to be in March, and we're going to do a city council resolution for it, and there's going to be groups coming from all over the Midwest and even Mexico and Seattle who are going to come here and celebrate with um, Calpuli, Yaos, and Nochtli. And they have a, a dance uh, group here in, in Minneapolis and, and St. Paul. And so we're getting um, together to think about how do we use that opportunity to talk about the indigenous roots of, of folks from Mexico and Latin America mm-hmm. and connect it to the indigenous presence and, and history and um, and First Nations mm-hmm. conversation here in Minnesota. I mean, in Minnesota, we have a lot of indigenous uh, nations here. Primarily in the Ninth Ward, we have Red Lake. We have people from White Earth. We have people from Leech Lake. Um, you know, and, and so we want to use that as a, as a conversation and, mm-hmm. and relationship um, uh, opportunity to, to build with our indigenous brothers and sisters of the north and, and bring our indigenous roots from the south to, to talk about that. So, so there's a, a lot of really cool stuff we're working on, and um, I think sometimes people get jealous. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Well, yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, for me, I moved here about three years ago, and, and it's been um, a very pleasant surprise to see just how much of my heritage is present, mm. and thinking that it would mm-hmm. never be, you know, I was mm-hmm. a little nervous about coming over Where's here. your family from? Uh, Chihuahua and Zacatecas. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. Did they immigrate to... LA or? My dad did in the 60s and then my mom did to marry him like in 80, 79 or something like that. So oh, wow. So he had his second wife. Wow. His second okay. Wife, yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, again, like I grew up in Los Angeles, it's very Latino, so it's, it's been nice to be, and like, the other thing I'll say too is that, you know, we're in the Midwest, there's all this passive aggressiveness and mm-hmm. people are kind of cold and distant mm-hmm. and they won't show them in their homes. Mm-hmm. And I always got mad when people asked me if I was experiencing that because I was like, well, yeah, you all like that. But when I go to communities of color, they're just like, sweet, look at this Mexican guy. Like, seems like a nice guy. Let's invite him to all these things. <laughs> right, you know, right, right, So right. that, that, and I think it's part of, it's part because <laughs> of the community is so small, but it's also just... We're very generous in inviting like, I know. flavor of Latino in the United States. I know. I'm telling you, I invite people to like a lot of things, and I think <laughs> they get weirded out. You know, they're like, "Why is she inviting? That's weird. Is she desperate or something?" <laughs> no, I just want to build community. Yeah. I don't want, you know, like, it's not that I don't have enough friends. It's, like, <laughs> it's that I'm just really like, you know, like to have a lot of people together and hang out and like do things and. Uh, no, I, I totally understand what you're saying. That's a good disclaimer. So if anybody, well, I'm going to ask you to hang out. It's not because she doesn't have any friends. <laughs> it's because I'm generally just a really welcoming, <laughs> like, people-oriented person. You know, I'm, I'm very close to Veronica, so just being in her in her space and people always coming over to the house and all these mm. parties, you know, it's just a very that's inviting. Nice. It's been important for me just to feel comfortable yeah. in a very white, unfamiliar environment. Totally, so, totally. And just being here and hearing Spanish everywhere and getting... Mm-hmm. Not the Mexican food of my native Los Angeles, but still, still pretty good. Right? You know? Yeah, yeah. We gotta. We gotta work on that. We gotta get more food trucks out there and get the the paleterias. We don't have paleterias here. We need one. Sadly, we do. Anybody out there that wants to start a paleteria, come to the Ninth <laughs> Ward. I'll help you. I'll help you out. <laughs> we'll give you many clients. Yeah. We'll find you clients. Don't worry. Is there anything else you want to throw in there? I think we're good. Another one. Any other thoughts you want to leave folks with? You know, I always talk about um, making sure that you're making decisions not out of fear, but out of the possibility and the potential. 
And so I was just thinking about the days when I chose to run for office. I was thinking about the days that we decided to bring people to the state capitol to advocate for the DREAM Act. We were always told no. We were always told mm. this is going to be too scary for the students or, you know, don't, don't take that risk. And I think that we need more risk takers. I think we need more people challenging themselves to leadership positions. And, um, and I want to just encourage all the listeners to not make decisions based out of fear, but out of love and hope and, and for the future that we need for our societies. Yeah, and we got your back. So yeah. We got you. <laughs> Tweet at Take me. I got you. Take that risk. What's your Twitter account? Uh, at people for the number four, Alondra. You just point, you just did four fingers, but nobody can see that. I did. You got to describe <laughs> it, otherwise people have no idea. Uh, and I'll link to your stuff when I Okay, wonderful. Posted, so Thank you. You don't have to worry about scribbling down. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, thanks. Bye.